farming can be hard and farming can be really discouraging. You know, there are times there's, there's a lot of variables that we as farmers deal with constantly that are out of our control and it can be very frustrating when things aren't going well. And I think it's really important to keep it fun. We have to find things that are interesting to us and that stimulate us mentally because if we just keep doing the same thing every year and, and hoping the situation will adjust to us, how likely are we to find success? Welcome to the 318th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, community food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. When taking steps to build soil health, it's easy to have high expectations for what's possible. Why not? After all, seeing what a soil health rock star like Gabe Brown has done to build resiliency and productivity on the land is truly inspiring. In fact, many pioneers in the field are seeing significant improvements in soil health within three to five years, which is impressive, given that for decades soil scientists were convinced that raising organic matter levels, for example, was all but impossible in a typical lifetime. So it's not surprising that when Minnesota farmer Mike Seifert started on his soil health journey around 2018, he had high hopes about the potential impact of practices like no-till, cover cropping, and the integration of alfalfa and small grains into his corn-soybean rotation. Indeed, he did see a major increase in aggregate structure, which has helped reduce erosion and has increased his field's ability to manage moisture. He's also been able to reduce what he spends on chemical inputs as a result of the practices he's adopted. But Mike concedes that he's been disappointed not to see the actual biology of his soil a lot further along by now. It turns out there's a difference between building a solid house for the soil biome and stocking the pantry with nutritious food. Creating a healthy soil biome with a good balance of vibrant fungal activity can create fields that are more resilient in the long term and which have the ability to cook up their own fertility and become resistant to weed and insect pests. After taking microbiologist Elaine Ingham's soil food web class, Mike became convinced that he needed to kickstart his soil's microbial life by applying compost extracts. So, for the past two years, he's been making his own compost extract on his family's farm in southern Minnesota. Working with the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program and the Soil Health Coalition, Mike's been experimenting with utilizing homegrown ingredients to build compost piles and then distilling them down to a liquid extract that he applies to the fields utilizing modified tillage equipment. It should be made clear that applying a compost extract to spark microbial life is different from making enough compost to cover an entire growing area, something gardeners are quite familiar with. The idea with compost extracts is to create a biological inoculum that sparks a kind of soil microbe chain reaction. As a result, a little extract can, in theory, be used to treat a lot of acres. Mike isn't the only farmer in the region experimenting with compost extracts. Currently, the Land Stewardship Project is working with five farmers, four in Minnesota and one in Wisconsin, to research the effectiveness of the Johnson Sioux compost bioreactor system. Developed by soil microbiology experts David Johnson and Huo Chun Sue Johnson, this system also strives to develop fungal-dense compost piles which can, in turn, produce soil inoculants. 
There are some significant differences between the type of composting Mike Seifert is practicing and the Johnson Sioux system, but the goal remains the same. Both methods are trying to hack the soil's biology and kickstart it into a more self-sufficient system. The Seifert family recently hosted a composting field day that the Land Stewardship Project co-sponsored. After he took participants step-by-step through his composting system and led them on a tour of the fields he's been applying inoculants to, Mike sat down to talk to me about his disappointment in discovering that building good soil structure is not enough and how he's working to supercharge his biology as a result. He also reflected on why hands-on research like this is a fun part of being a farmer. Uh, Without going too far back in our farm history, I mean, just a quick I guess just a quick idea would be, you know, it was a, it was a full-time dairy farm until 1993, and then my dad uh, sold the cows, and he, he kind of part-time farmed it, growing corn and soybeans from 93 until about 2017 or so when we started talking about soil health practices, mm-hmm. and then it was 2018 when we started uh, doing no-till and cover crops, and 2019 was our first year uh, where we, our first full year where we really were devoted to the no-till and cover crops concept. And then since then, we've diversified our rotation a little bit so that we're not doing just corn and beans anymore. Uh, But we also include a a significant portion of our our land in alfalfa hay. And we usually have at least one field of small grains every year. We are not, you know, uh, dogmatic adherents to the no-till concept, but we try to keep our tillage as minimal as possible so that we only use it when we really, really need to. And all of our corn and soybeans are are pretty much no-tilled. We might do a little tillage when we do uh, establishing a field of alfalfa hay like with a brilliant cedar where you need to prepare a little bit of a seed bed. So we're, we're, we're pretty devoted to the idea of soil health principles and we're, we're trying to implement as much as many of those principles as we can. And, we're try- and we use cover crops. In terms of after corn and soybean harvest we plant cereal rye. We plant green into rye the next year and we interseed our corn crop with a diverse mix of cover crops as well um, with varying degrees of success depending on the drought conditions. The last three years have been pretty droughty so for us, that interseeding has been a little hit and miss, but we keep doing it because it's a really good concept and we really, we really feel strongly about taking that monoculture corn crop and turning it into more of a polyculture crop. So, And, and you've kind of introduced small grains a little bit into, into the mix with the alfalfa and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, use, we use small grains, either oats or winter rye. We've done both now where um, we've grown oats that we will uh, harvest and then clean and direct market them for horse feed as bagged horse feed. Um, and then we've grown winter rye. Uh, this year we grew winter rye as our small grain uh, to be cleaned and sold as cover crop seed. Probably going to go back to oats next year, so we're just kind of figuring out what works best for us. But I really like a small, a small grain as a precursor to an alfalfa crop. And we've gotten our alfalfa rotation to the point now where um, the intention was when we used to grow alfalfa, we might have one field and it might, we might grow it for like five years, and so a fairly long rotation. Now we've gotten to where we have two alfalfa fields. They're on a strict... Uh, three-year rotation. So after three years, a field gets terminated, and then it goes to corn the next year. Uh, we spray it, spray it down in the fall, and then no-till corn into it the next year. But in that same year, we've established a new alfalfa field after small grains uh, fall seed the alfalfa. So we've always got two alfalfa fields in various stages of that three-year life cycle, and that's been really great as a precursor to corn. You know, we can follow alfalfa with a corn crop and grow a really nice corn crop that's fairly weed-free, uh, no-tilling into that. Uh, that that alfalfa field that's being taken out of production, and uh, and and we can provide a lot of the fertility needs for that corn with that alfalfa field too. So we can keep our fertilizer costs down. And one of the biggest things that I like to use alfalfa for, and it's also okay, it's also a really good cash crop. Mm-hmm. We found that uh, do, doing small square bales of like high quality 
horse hay that we sell to horse customers uh, has been very lucrative for us and has now formed about a third of our farm's income. Part of that has been the dry years too. We've been able to make really good quality hay. So that's important, I think, from a financial perspective. And then a weed control perspective. Having that alfalfa in the mix gives us a chemical-free way to control weeds. If we, if we have a particularly weedy field, we will sometimes slate that as the next field we're going to establish with a small grain crop and then an alfalfa crop. Because let's say we have a field that's got a lot of uh, glyphosate-resistant ragweed or water hemp or other broadleaf weeds that are problematic. Um, that three-year alfalfa rotation will really knock out those weeds because they never get a chance to go to seed. Um, and then we can have multiple years of, of, of really low weed pressure corn and soybeans after that. So it really does a, a variety of, of jobs for us and uh, has been really, really, really beneficial to, to get that rotation away from a strict corn and soybean rotation and incorporate the small grains and alfalfa to have that perennial, to have the small grain crop. Um, I, I should say too, with oats, oats are a good mycorrhizal fungal, fungal yeah. carrier. So yeah. having that, uh, that oat crop in there is kind of the reason we'd like to go back to that again next year, uh, doing oats rather than winter rye, because that gives us a chance to get hopefully some mycorrhizal fungi inoculated into our soil through that oat crop. And that's kind of the best way I've found to do that so far. Well, one of the things that kind of got you on this soil journey was you had learned about what pe folks like Gabe Brown were doing in North Dakota, and that got you really excited, and you started integrating cover crops and no-till and some of, things, some of these things you talk about. But what struck me was you realized maybe fairly early on that those practices, you were seeing some pretty, you saw some benefits pretty quickly. So, uh, reduction in erosion and the aggregate structure was improving, but you weren't seeing the improvements in the overall soil health that you would like to see um, just from purely those practices and kind of, I guess, building that soil house, you realize you had to kind of work on the inner workings of it a little bit and the biology of it. You talk a little bit about that. It sounds like that was a real eye-opener for you that there was more to it than just maybe making sure that ground's covered 365 days a year or making sure there's good root structure in there and all of that. Absolutely. So I'll preface it by saying maybe my expectations were unreasonable. But, <laughs> but you know... Um, you hear from a lot of guys, you hear from a lot of people implementing soil health practices that three to five years, you're going to start to see dramatic results. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's just human nature that we talk about dramatic results, you know, because we want, we want other people to adopt these practices and, it, and there's no reason other people shouldn't. So I don't mean to downplay it, but what, what I found, I, I took the soil food web classes with Dr. Laningham and that was a big investment uh, to do that, but I really felt like I needed to understand the biology uh, in our soils so that we could kind of understand what sort of progress we were making. Because we, we could see results above ground, of course, and, and we were early in the progress in the process, so so we hadn't started to see those results yet. And that's kind of why I wanted to take those courses when I did, because I'm like, let's find out where we're starting from and where we're going to. And when I started to do microscopy work on some of our soils after those courses, what I realized was that we were three years into no-till and cover crops, and we still had soils that looked very bacterially dominated. Um, the structure was improving. I think our water infiltration rates were improving. We were seeing good results with our, our crops were kind of coming around after a transition period. And so we were getting decent yields. And we were reducing our fertilizer use and a lot of good things. Um, and spray, our, our spray usage was, was going down. So like we were, we were cutting back on a number of things and hoping that the biology was going to pick up the slack. 
And what I was observing was that we just did not have that diversity of biology in our soils quite as quickly as I was hoping. And again, maybe I was being unreasonable about that. You know, they say three to five years, and I thought at three years, things were going to be looking really good, you know? <laughs> and, and I was a little disappointed. So then that's what got us on track to start making compost. So having taken those soil food web classes and then having looked at our fields and, and seen, seeing that the biology was not where we wanted it to be, uh, part of those classes was learning how to make really good, high-quality, biodiverse compost. And I thought that was kind of a, just a, a nice addition. I wasn't that interested in the compost portion of it. I just wanted to understand the biology and be able to do the microscope work. Mm -hmm. But then when I discovered what, what, I was see what, I, what I was seeing in our fields via the microscope, I realized maybe we could start to use that compost to inoculate those soils and try to bring more of that beneficial biology back to our soils quicker and accelerate the process. And maybe do it in a way that added more microbial diversity, you know? If we allowed it to come back on its own, it probably would have over a longer period of time. But it, I thought if we started making compost and then turning that compost into extract, liquid extract, and putting that on our fields, we might be able to pick things up, speed the process up, and uh, see results quicker and have more diversity because we're going to bring things into that field through the composting process that might not just happen there on their own through no-till and cover crops alone. So mm -hmm. that was kind of the philosophy behind why we started doing that. Um, so we're two years into that process. We have a grant uh, through SARE, and we're working in partnership with the Minnesota Soil Health Coalition on that. The grant period is, is two years, and it's going to be ending in this coming spring of 2024. But I'm going to con continue to, to do that uh, beyond the actual research period. Uh, because I'm, I'm seeing some benefits. It's a little bit nebulous yet in terms of results, and I think that's normal. It's a scientific study. It's certainly not hurting anything. We've had some results through soil tests that aren't really showing a whole lot of uptick in biological activity. But I also think I have some more work to do. Like, my composting process is not totally perfect at this point. We're getting better at it as we go, and we're learning a lot as we go, and um, we've developed some pretty neat little pieces of equipment to help apply that biologic extract onto the field that we can continue to use. Um, so I'm not giving up on it, but I think it's important to iterate that we're not seeing really dramatic results yet. But I, th I think we're seeing some results in our field from it. And you, you took us through. It was a really good step-by-step -step of, of your process a little bit. And wonder if you could, you don't have to go into way, major detail, but explain a little bit what some of the material you're using and how you're kind of a, it's a recipe that you have. There's a method to the madness a little bit. And some people may be familiar with the Johnson Sioux system, which is uh, something where you keep it in a stack undisturbed for a year sometimes or more but you're using a little your timeline's a little bit different and it's a little bit so maybe explain the difference between that and your sounds like you're kind of doing it in windrows that type of thing it's a great setup you've got the old dairy barn there which you explained that was always the source of your fertility on the farm and now it's kind of uh, ironic that it's, a, it's another source of, of I guess soil health for you. Yeah, yeah. So we lost our dairy barn in 1998 in a storm, and it, it now is the concrete surface. The floor that's left there is where I make the compost uh, that I'm using for this process. I think the most important point is, whether it's similar or different from that uh, undisturbed pile, is that we're making it with a purpose. You know, the ingredients that we pick for the compost are very purposeful. Mm -hmm. um, we're trying to make compost that's very fungally dominated because... Our first goal, I think, you know, we're trying to restore the entire web of life in our soil, and that's a lot of different microorganisms. But probably the most important balance that we're, we're focusing on first is that ratio between bacteria and fungi. So we're trying to make 
compost that's very fungally dominated. And whether that's active fun fungi or fungal spores in the compost, that's really what I want to be applying to our soils. So yes, we, we don't do exactly the Johnson Soup process. Um, it's more like, I guess you'd call it the soil food web method, where mm -hmm. we try to pick ingredients that are high carbon ingredients and make that the majority of our compost pile, or at least um, at least more than half, you know. And that's what majority means. I guess I had it right. Um, so, <laughs> so I like to use things like wood chips. Um, we have a lot of buckthorn on the farm, so we, when we're cutting that down in the pasture, we'll run that through a wood chipper. Uh, that's great for introducing a fungal component to the pile. We have straw here. We, we, we raise broiler chickens on pasture, but they spend some time in a brooder coop, so we always have wood shavings and chicken manure that we can use. We have some goats here that are helping browse brush in our pasture. So I have a, a shelter for them or a trailer with straw in there, and they like to go in, and they create a lot of manure. And uh, that straw mixed with manure is a great ingredient for us for, like, fungal component in, in our compost mix. So we like our compost to be about 50 to 60% kind of that high-carbon, hopefully mixed with some kind of manure that brings in, you know, more biology to the mix. Uh, we try to use as diverse a mix of ingredients as we can when we make our compost batches. And then it's about 30% green grassy material. So I'll, I'll use meadow grass a lot of times. We bale meadows and we'll have a, a bad bale here and there or something that just isn't, you know, acceptable to sell and I'll mix that in. There's no shortage of sources for ingredients on a farm for making compost. And then the high nitrogen component that we use to heat up the pile because it's a thermophilic composting process where we want the pile to get hot and we're going to turn it a couple of times to get everything through the hot middle of the pile. Um, and then we're going to let it sit for quite a while. So after, after the thermophilic process, it's a lot like the Johnson Sioux process where it's going to spend a decent amount of time just sitting as a static pile and letting the fungi develop. Um, but I was saying for a high nitrogen component, since I don't have manure on the farm, I don't have a lot of livestock here, except for the incidental stuff mixed in with the high carbon ingredients, I'll use alfalfa. Alfalfa is a really good high nitrogen uh, ingredient that helps get a pile nice and hot. Um, and we want it to get up above 130 degrees, but below about 175 degrees, somewhere in that range, uh, to kill off any pathogenic bacteria and microbes and weed seeds in the middle of the pile and so on. Um, so that's kind of our process in a nutshell, where we go through that hot thermophilic process. We'll build a pile using those ingredients, kind of in that, you know, 60% browns, 30% green grassy material, and then 10 to 20% high nitrogen. That's kind of our ratio. No matter what ingredients we're using, we're trying to hit those ratios. And then that usually results in a, a pretty decent result. We get, we get a, a good pile that gets hot enough to do what it needs to do. We get it through that hot phase of building the pile turning it a couple of times and letting it sit. And then we can basically let that pile mellow and age for as long as we need to. And we sort of assess that by looking at it under, under a microscope. We'll make a, an extract or, or, or take a sample from the compost pile and we'll examine it under a, under a microscope and see what life forms we have there. And then we can kind of decide if it needs to sit a little longer, or if it's ready to use, and, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of the, the brief Cliff's Notes rundown of how we make a pile. Some, you feel like sometimes you'll have what you need in about three months or so. Is that right? Yeah. So in the soil food web classes, they'd talk about what I just described and say, like, you can have finished compost within 30 days. That always feels a little bit too fast for me. And so with some of the ingredients we're using, they're not breaking down quite as quick if they're larger ingredients and stuff. So I tend to say that we've got pretty good usable compost within about three months, which is nice because if I can start a pile at the beginning of summer and I want to do a fall inoculation, I can have material then for putting an inoculation out, in, out, out on our fields by that fall. And for my spring applications, I use the previous year's compost. So if we're doing things right on a decent schedule, which 
Oftentimes we're not because things get busy on a farm. Right. Um, but in a perfect world, you know, we're, we can keep that cycle going so we always have a good supply of compost. So what we do with that then is we take that and uh, we, we brew it into an extract. And um, I like to talk about the difference between an extract and a tea because yeah. people hear about compost tea and they, those two terms are often interchanged with one another. So by saying we make an extract, I guess what I'm saying is we take the compost and we put it in a mesh, like a tea bag, a 400 micron mesh bag, and we steep that in water in a big, uh, those 275 gallon IBC totes that you can buy on Craigslist or Facebook and lots of people have them for sale. And we have an aerator system in there to keep the water aerated and, and mixing. And um, it takes us about 30 minutes to make a batch of compost extract. And all we're trying to do really is pull the biology out of that compost mix and get it in that liquid solution. Mm -hmm. Because then we can load it onto an applicator and take it out into the fields and we can cover a lot of ground with that. The difference would be if you're making a compost tea, you'd be brewing that for... Uh, you'd maybe steep your compost in, in that water and add a food source and you'd be brewing it for a longer period of time, say 24 to 48 hours, and you're trying to multiply the microbes and really build up a really dense microbial population in a compost tea, and then you have to get it applied really fast because the population density in that liquid is so heavy that um, it'll use up all the oxygen really quick if you can't get it applied. So we're, we're taking the safer route, I would say, where we're doing this extract mix where we're just pulling the biology, getting it in the liquid system uh, from the compost into the liquid water solution. And then from there, we have some equipment that we've modified um, to be able to uh, apply that out in the fields. We have our, our corn planter, which is set up like, basically like a liquid fertilizer delivery system where we can load the compost extract in and it injects it right in furrow with the corn seed. That's probably my favorite way to apply the extract because it's putting it right with the crop seed right where it needs to be and hopefully giving that seed a shot of biology that will then develop as that plant grows and continue to affiliate and associate with that plant root system as that corn is growing. Um, but we have also taken a chisel plow that we uh, we used to have to do tillage work and we took the, uh, the chisel, the, the plow um, uh, shanks off of it that were used for turning the soil and we put thin anhydrous knives in their place so that we can go in without doing too much soil disturbance and we can inject that compost extract about three inches into the ground. And that's nice for more of a blanket application. Our corn rows are 38 inches apart, so when we do extract with the corn planter, it's pretty spaced out, but it's going right where the corn needs it to be. But with this chisel plow modified as an injector, we can space those. Uh, those shanks are running about 11 inches apart from one another. so we can get a more blanket coverage with that. So we've got a couple of different tools that we've put together that we have at our disposal to put that biology right in the soil. And to me, that's a really important part of this. Yeah. An easy way to do this process is to make an extract and put it in a regular crop sprayer and then surface apply it with your sprayer. And you can cover a lot of ground that way, and I think it's a good, viable way to do it if you don't have any other method. But I look at it as the biology is created in a compost pile. It needs to go in the ground because that's where it's going to be most at home. If you put it on the soil and plant surface, you're going to have UV rays, you're going to have, uh, you know, air drying out that compost. It's, the biology is not going to thrive if you, if you put it out in a hostile environment that it's not acclimated to and where it didn't, where it wasn't fostered to begin with. Um, so that's a big part of what we're doing too, is trying to get that compost extract right in the ground where it's going to do the most good. And what's really neat about this is it's kind of punching above its weight in that you are able to take a relatively small amount of material and create an inoculate that can cover several acres. And, and your ratio, is it like 
uh, was it 10 pounds or 10 gallons of uh, <laughs> maybe explain that I, I math is not my strength I can't I had that written down but anyway explain that ratio of how much you're applying per acre and because you explained earlier that if you were creating if you were composting enough material to cover your entire farm like it was a source of fertility I mean you'd have to have a huge composting operation you there's just it wouldn't be tenable for you yeah, and that was the appeal of the li- the liquid extract because we felt like we could cover a lot more acres with that and use it as a biological inoculum. I mean, I think maybe, you know, a lot of home gardeners, you know, who get compost, they'll blanket their garden with four inches of compost. And that's great. It's a wonderful way to, to do that. But it's not feasible on a farm-wide scale. I was kind of explaining it, you know, I remember when we had dairy cattle and we'd haul manure all winter long and there was no way we'd cover all our acres, you know. So the idea of generating that much compost. So the idea, I think... It's a, it's, a, it's a paradigm shift in a person's mind where you're not imagining blanketing your fields with a thick layer of this mm-hmm. stuff, but more the idea that you're putting it out there as a biological inoculum, mm-hmm. you know, and you're putting enough out to introduce the biology and give it a little bit of a kickstart, and then from there, hopefully, it takes off on its own. And, th- and maybe there's a, a niche that certain species that you're, that you're fostering in your compost pile will then get out into your fields and find a way to thrive. I said it's kind of a shotgun approach where we... We're trying to create as much biology and as much diverse biology as possible and put it out there, and then hopefully whatever is best suited for the field situation is what's going to thrive, and then other things are going to die. But, but maybe in subsequent years, they do better. You know, Every year is different, and every situation is different, and hopefully our soil is changing and evolving as we go through this process. And so it's, 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 uh, it takes, I think, some persistence and some patience and, um, and consistency. Yeah. What was it again per acre that you're? you're oh right. By? So I got off. I got off, and you've got to correct me on that. <laughs> so the rates. Um, yeah, I don't have it in my head, but we can we can let the listeners do the math. So I use about twenty pounds of compost to brew up two hundred and twenty gallons of extract. Okay. And then from there, I apply ten gallons per acre. That would be that. That's my application rate. And there is a method to the madness in that you you uh, you do microbial examinations and you're trying to get a certain amount of microbial microbial activity there it was in it was something like yeah explain that it was 300 to 600 but anyway there's some there's a goal that you're looking for it's not just you are a little bit letting nature take its course and draw that what it wants but you also have a goal of you feel like you need to attain a certain level of microbial activity there Right. And that's a tricky thing to do because you have to kind of pick a marker that you want to use to indicate, you know, how, how heavy of a rate am I putting this down? And you can mix it in any concentration you want and you can apply it at any number of gallons per acre that you want. So honing in on a number or a, a, a method that's going to provide the right benefits is a little bit of a challenge. And I know the first year that we, that we applied compost extract in the spring, we set up well, I should backtrack a little bit. The marker that I've decided to use is fungal spores because we've been pretty successful at making compost that has a lot that is fungally dominated. I don't see as much other biology in there as I'd like, like protozoa and nematodes and things like that, but I think we're getting better at it and we have room for improvement. So for now, with what we're doing, we have been able to get good fungal compost. So what I will do is mix a batch of extract and then I will pull a sample from that and look at it with a microscope and I can count fungal spores under the, the cover slip of that microscope slide. And then we can multiply that out. You know, we know how many, you know, one drop on a microscope slide, and I know it's 28 drops per milliliter with the pipettes that I'm using. And from there, it's just multiplication out to gallons and gallons per acre. And the first year that we applied uh, compost extract, 
we put on about 6 million fungal spores per acre, and that's the marker we've chosen to use. Because fungal spores are easy to identify under the microscope, and they're easy to count. And those are things that, and, and they, they help forward our goal of getting more fungi in the soil. So that's kind of how we came to that, using that as the marker. And um, then we went to, actually, it was an LSP event in Lewiston. I think it was at the Pangrac Farm, mm -hmm. if I have that name right. Yeah. And Dr. David Johnson was there. And uh, I, I, at one point after he was done speaking, I kind of pulled him aside and told him what we were doing. And I said, what rate should I be shooting for? And he said, about 50 million fungal spores per acre. So, so we knew he had come up pretty short on that first, uh, that first application. But it's a learning process. Yeah. So after that, we increased our concentration of uh, brewing. Uh, how much compost we used to brew a batch, and then how many gallons per acre we were putting down. And now we, we, we kind of figured, since it doesn't hurt anything to go over uh, the recommended amount, that we're, we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 million to 500 million fungal spores per acre, and sometimes a little higher than that. It just depends. But if we can hit, at that point, we're so far above what Dr. Johnson recommended, and I'm kind of using him as the benchmark, that we're not too concerned whether it's 300 million or 500 million. You know, we're we're in very safe territory for the amount of biology we're putting down. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how we determine our rate. So it's a, it's a, it's a learning process. And it, it, you have to try it and, fa uh, and, you know, correct your mistakes and keep going and get better. Well, I like that idea of you are, again, working with nature. So you let nature kind of decide, maybe even from season to season or field to field, what it needs from that extract and, and using it. But you're not completely letting nature take its course. You have certain goals and markers that you're going for because, you know, you have to have some guidelines that you're working under. Otherwise, it's just a wild west out there. So that's, it seems like that's a good balance. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we can see some results. Um, it's been tricky. I have to be honest. You know, we've had three years of drought, mm -hmm. and that's, that has colored our results, I right. think, because it's hard to grow microbes and microbiology in the soil without moisture. And so we've been doing this for two years, and we've been dry for three, and I would really love it if we could have a, a, what might be called a typical year, <laughs> so that we could actually give this a fair shake and see if, it's, if, it's, if the benefits are, are there to the degree that we'd like them to be. And that's why I'm going to keep doing it. Eventually, we're going to hit a year where we get more rainfall, and we're going um, to see that biology do whatever it can do under, under ideal circumstances. And, and, you know, today on the tour we went out, we looked at some soybeans that were flourishing and doing better in an area where, where we'd applied compost extract versus right next door where we had a control zone. And, but it's hard to say. There's, in farming there's a lot of variables. And so we're, we're playing it by ear and we're, we're learning from our mistakes and I, I hope we're getting better at it. I'd like to say, you know, as I'm making compost, the biological diversity of the compost we're making uh, is not where I'd like it to be. So our next step is going to be trying to take our finished compost and feed it to earthworms and make vermicompost. Mm. And in that way, I think we'll get a more diverse, higher quality product that we can use for extract. And then the bulk compost that we're making could maybe just be applied on the soil surface and fields. So we're trying new things even within this process and trying to correct things and make it better as we go. Uh, in general, I know that you're still trying to figure out what the ultimate results are going to be. And every year is different. And you're looking for, like you said, a typical year. But it sounds like it's just plain fun. You kind of <laughs> learn to learn. You're just, you are a natural learner and you are learning a lot about what's going on. And you like fiddling with the equipment, it looks like. You, you know how to hack equipment, but you really like hacking the biology, <laughs> I can tell. Well, you know, Brian, I think 
farming can be hard and farming can be really discouraging. You know, there are times there's, there's a lot of variables that we as farmers deal with constantly that are out of our control and it can be very frustrating when things aren't going well. And I think it's really important to keep it fun. We have to find things that are interesting to us and that stimulate us mentally because if we just keep doing the same thing every year and, and hoping the situation will adjust to us, you know, how likely are we to find success, you know? So it's like, you feel, I hope I'm not disillusioning myself, but I feel like I'm stacking the deck in my favor, you know what I mean? If we can go out and we can learn about the biology and that's one more element, maybe we still can't control it 100%. But we can influence it more than if we didn't understand it at all. And we can know what to look for to know at least that aspect of our farm is something that we're working on and that we can see and that we can measure in some way. And it just gets put into that, more into that pot of things that we do have control over, or at least we know something about. So for me, it's a way to, to remain optimistic and remain hopeful. And I love the idea that we could be a, an example to other people who are looking for answers on some of these things if we can figure out some of these mistakes and figure out what works best that's the point of this field day today was like we can pass on what we know so far and i hope in the next few years we learn a lot more so that if we have this field day again in three years or two years or next year we can say hey we made some breakthroughs we have some answers now where we're we're getting good results here consistently that's really important to me i feel like we need to be a, a part of making a difference For more information on the Land Stewardship Project's work with compost extracts and other areas of soil microbiology, see the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode 318 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly. If you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSB. Thanks for listening.